Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Peggy's Recovery Corner. I am here today on our recovery podcast. This is a recovery podcast where we talk about all things recovery, recovery from addiction, from alcoholism, mental health, um, and, uh, you know, all things considered when it comes to recovery. So um, I was away for a little while, but I'm back. Uh, I went to Minneapolis to go pay homage to Prince. He is my favorite artist, as many of you know. And um, it was just nice to go and be in Minneapolis. Unfortunately, I caught COVID and brought it back with me. So I needed a rest for the last week. But now I'm all healed, I believe. I'm, I've been on the mend. I'm good. Um, I have a very, very special guest today. Um, his name is Sam M. Sam is uh, he's based out of Beverly Hills. He's a professional that works in the field of addiction and alcoholism. Um, he's a therapist, uh, but he wears a lot of hats where he works. Um, Sam is at Cast Recovery Centers, and we'll get more into that. Welcome to the corner, Sam. Thank you, Pesh. Thanks for having me. So how's it going today? It's going well. I'm, I'm uh, here at Cast now, so uh, it's nice to kind of see you after a while and uh, catch up. I'm really looking forward to uh, our conversation today. Totally. So... Sam, you've been working in the field of addiction for quite some time now. Um, uh, you know, what? How long have you been working with addicts and alcoholics that are struggling with addiction? I think now it's been somewhere around twelve years or so, um, in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it started really with a lot of like uh, specific work with addiction, and it's evolved in so many different ways. Where I've kind of um, had the opportunity to work with. Uh, older adults, younger people, um, and people who don't just struggle with addiction, but also may struggle with other mental health issues. Uh, so it's been it's been quite a journey. Mm -hmm. And um, you, besides being a therapist, I mean, what got you interested in being a therapist? You went to school at UCLA, correct? Yeah. Well, what got me interested in being a therapist is my own like personal experience as a as like. A, teenager navigating the whole mental health field, trying to figure out uh, how to find a therapist and things like that. And what I, I personally found in my experience was there's a lot of them out there, um, but I didn't really like a lot of them. And it actually inspired me because <clears throat> I wanted to kind of learn more. I'm, oh, I've always been really interested in like why we do the things we do, human behavior and, and you know, I learned over the years that there people do change and that's always inspired me to kind of be interested in what makes people change. How can I support people in changing? And, um, over the years, that's kind of become more and more of a reality for me. But mm -hmm. the thing that actually made me want to become a therapist is that I really didn't enjoy the therapists I work with, to be honest. <laughs> and what was it? Was it there, was there a low knowledge base of addiction or how to treat people with addiction? Was that what it was? Well, I think, so this was just my experience, uh, but I remember specifically, I was having a hard time as a teenager um, and I got, I met with this therapist and I, and we only had a few sessions together, individual therapy, and I sat with him um, and I would talk and he wouldn't say anything really. Um, and I just remember leaving that, those sessions feeling more confused and almost like is this helpful is this what it's supposed to be like 
uh, and I've heard a lot of people who've had similar experiences where, where they're not getting feedback or, or real kind of solutions. And um, that was the initial thing that kind of planted a seed in my mind where I was like, I think a lot of people have this growing up where you're like, let's say you have a teacher that you uh, don't have the best experience with and you have this like idea of when I'm older, I'm going to become a really cool teacher, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, it was similar to that where I was like, it would be really cool to be in a position where I could help people, but do it with my own personality and, and own uh, style. I like that very much. So <clears throat> obviously I've known you, you know, for over a decade and a half. Um, we have worked in various areas and with various people. Some of them uh, had major struggles. Today's uh, topic was how to overcome addiction. So, uh, to some people, that sounds like uh, a tall order, you know, uh, almost impossible, especially for people that are stuck in active addiction. You know, some people can't see their lives, not only totally <coughs> abstinence-based, but <coughs> carrying on lives that are forever sober, forever in recovery. So I wanted to be able to, you know, give people inspiration and let them know that it's very possible that we see it. Um, today is a special day, but we won't go into that too much at all. Um, oh, yes, we will. <laughs> we can. But we, when you and I talked earlier this morning, we talked about sort of kind of interviewing each other because I am an interventionist. Um, this is something that I'm trained in. I do a lot of interventions for many different types of people. Obviously, we're both Persian. Um, so there's a lot of people in our community that are struggling. We often are talking to lots of parents or people that have loved ones that are struggling. Um, so I thought that rather than uh, delve into the past of anything that we don't really need to talk about today, why don't we talk about how we help people overcome addiction and uh, what you do, what I do, what your methods are, what my methods are. I know that you have a family member that also is a therapist to me. He's like one of the best therapists I've ever encountered um, through, through his practice, through his through his trait. And it's not just uh, in individual therapy. I've watched him as a group facilitator, just turn a room out. I'm talking like to the point where I was like in awe and think it was one of those people that I remember in my early training and uh, early, re early times of working in recovery. I, I thought to myself, I want to learn like to be like that and to be able to talk to people and have that skill set. So let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> um, I think the biggest challenge, right, is a lot of people who think they want to change, whether it's an addiction, whether it's some sort of, they, they want something out of their life, or it's an anxiety, or a family member struggling, whatever the case may be that requires change. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and I've actually experienced, is that a lot of us don't really want to change, because change requires us to be uh, uncomfortable and change is unfamiliar. We don't know what our lives would look like if a change were to happen in our lives. A lot of people would rather feel better about what they're currently doing. And that's what they may think change means, just feeling better about what they're currently doing. Right. Um, and what we do is, and this is something all of us do in our lives, is we'll, we'd rather stick with the familiar situation regardless of the consequences regardless of if it's not working in our lives as opposed to take what feels like a risk uh 
and allowed change into our lives. So that that's where I thought I would just kind of, that's what comes to mind when you talk about this first thing before we can even talk about how to overcome addiction is that's what I see for a lot of people as like the initial barrier is we measure progress usually based on what, how we feel. Oh, I'm feeling better. So this thing is working. Right. But a lot of people just kind of, uh, I think come in just starting off, like, how can I feel better about what I'm already doing instead of changing what I'm doing with a hope of feeling better? Have you experienced mm-hmm. that? Yes, I have. I think a lot, you know, I mean, I've seen it with many different people. I've seen it with family members of people. Yeah. Um, right. Hmm. So give us an example of, of something that you've seen when somebody doesn't want to change or is very comfortable and how they feel like uh, they can't or that it's not possible. Well, I mean, there there's so many examples, especially with family members, like you said, because, you know, with a family member, it's very easy to say that, you know, I'm not the problem or uh, to look at something external, like another person or a situation and say, well, if only that thing were to get better or improve, then obviously as a family or obviously I would be better. It's very easy to do that. But it's kind of like, you know, think about you have like an old car and one of the tires are flat, like running out of air and you fill that tire up with air. Now the other three tires are going to seem a little, uh, a little worse than that new tire you just filled up. You know, they're all impacted. And and I think the thing that's been most helpful is because this isn't, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just acknowledging with the person of what does change actually look like for them? Because it's different for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, usually when we think about change, we think about an outcome instead of like, what's the first step? What's the first thing we have to do? Right. Right. Do you deal with a lot of um, Iranians? Do they come to you because you're Iranian? Sometimes. Not not as much as I used to. I mean, um, I'll get calls from, with Iranians, you know, with the culture, it's so stigmatized. There's so many secrets. Everyone's lying to each other. Um, we really, really are good at making things look a certain way on the outside mm-hmm. um, and ignoring what's really going on really experts at it. Um, and so as, as a result of that, it usually is like a family member who's calling me and talking about their loved one. And then of course they always start the conversation with, you know, whether I know the person or not, please don't tell them I called you just right off the bat, setting the tone of, you know, cause, because I think, and it's not, it's just, a, it's just part of the reality right now of what our culture is because, um, you know, I think, there's a lot of shame tied into the Iranian culture. You know, we grew up with mm-hmm. a lot of shame. I, I know I did where um, it's, it's kind of shame based where uh, there's certain things you don't do. There's certain things you don't talk about. There's certain things that aren't acceptable. And it's especially, <laughs> especially true with addiction because, you know, uh, so when I get a call from a family member in, who's Persian, it's usually uh, regarding their son and once their kid, or daughter, once the, their kid is ready to kind of take the next step, you know, uh, it doesn't, in, you know, typically what I found for it to be the most successful is the family has to get involved. Has, mm-hmm. I mean, there has to be some sort of, it's really hard to, to overcome addiction or, or any sort of mental health issue in our culture mm-hmm. without the family involvement because we're so collective in that way. 
uh, at Cast Centers, you guys are an outpatient in Beverly Hills, correct? Yeah, we're an outpatient. We're in West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, right on the border. Um, and we deal with uh, addiction as well as mental health issues. Okay, so I have a few questions. We'll, we'll go back to the family uh, being involved in their loved one's treatment. But let's say you get uh, a patient that comes in that uh, has a mental health, perhaps um, has had some bipolar, you know, okay. and, and then on top of that, there's addiction in the mix, right? And uh, the person pretty much depends on, let's say, marijuana, because that's what soothes them. That's what kind of gives them a sense of ease and comfort. And they don't see life any other way. And they feel like that they've tried all kinds of medication. How do you deal with a, with a patient like that? Like, how are you going to be able to convince them that there are other alternatives or do you do that? And how do you get them to a point where if they're not even in the pre-contemplative state or even at the pre-contemplative state, get them to understand like this isn't helping you, it's hurting you. Do you do that? course i think in it okay so with any person i meet with initially the first thing i find out or i try to look for i mean is what motivates this person because even the people who seem the least motivated are are motivated by something we're all right. motivated by something when you meet with people who typically struggle with uh anxiety that's tied to trauma anyone's experienced a lot of trauma a lot of the time uh they're really motivated by safety so it looks like they may not be doing anything or they stay in bed all day or whatever may be going on, but really what they're motivated by is safety or a sense of comfort. And that's why I think it's so important when you meet with someone, let's say we take this case, someone who is has bipolar disorder, but is coping with smoking weed all the time, right? And now is struggling with addiction on top of their mental health issue. They're being motivated by something, especially if they got to the point where they ended up in an office like mine. If they ended up in a meeting in a treatment center, something got them there. A lot of addicts usually, the thing that motivates them is consequences, of course, uh, internal and external consequences. But it's figuring out what is that, what is that motivation or leverage? What is the thing that's getting the person to show up even in the first place? Mm -hmm. And that's the trail that we need to follow because we can't kind of look at everyone and say, well, they should be motivated by having a job or they should be motivated by wanting to get better or they should be motivated because they keep getting arrested. Maybe that's not motivating for the person. You know, we have to, we have to kind of support the person in like identifying what is the actual thing that's motivating them. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to change, but it, I find it to be the best use of that initial meeting. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then what about people that, that you deal with that think that they'll never get better or they don't know how, what it would look like to stay sober long-term? Um, how, how do you help them see that there is light at the end of the tunnel or that there is hope and that they can actually really do this? Do you Motivation. Mean, do you mean people who are like newly sober and newly sober and, and just aren't feeling the benefits or yes. Things like that. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting one because there's people who get sober and then all of a sudden they're in this amazing. I mean, naturally, when someone gets sober, their life gets a little bit better because they're just not contributing more mess to more consequences, more issues initially. But there are, like you said, a lot of people who get sober and they're just hope they don't feel 
like this is working for them or they're doubting themselves. Mm-hmm. I think I think really what that comes down to a lot is um, more around uh, our relationship with ourselves, especially with addiction. You know, with addiction, it's like through all the damage and uh, consequences and pain and hurt and struggles that uh, a person struggling with addiction kind of inflicts on the world, they were present for all of that themselves. And they have gone through all of that themselves. And what you're left with, once you remove like the main coping skill, which is let's say heroin or alcohol or whatever, is someone who really typically has like a low self-esteem, low self-worth, a lot of doubt, feels insecure, feels like a fraud, feels like uh, there's no sense of identity or point of living because truly the drugs and alcohol fill that space for so long. So it's about, and this is what therapy is about in the first place, is, is kind of figuring out uh, who you are and strengthening the relationship with yourself. So for me, when I hear that or, or I see people like that, it's more about working on what interests you, what is, we got to find a hook in sobriety, something that like engages us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just removing the substance will make the person worse. <laughs> You're just taking the thing that's helping them. Right. And so it's about what are we replacing that with that's actually fulfilling. Do you believe in uh, when you're trying to work with somebody and educating them on the dangers of the type of substance that they're using? Is that of vital importance? No one, if you're an addict, you don't care about that. Right. You don't care about that. The last thing you're thinking about is addicts are afraid of nothing, they think, because they're not afraid of dying. They think, oh, I'm not afraid of dying, therefore I'm not afraid of anything. But the truth is, it's the opposite. They're usually afraid of everything except dying. So, so a lot of these fentanyl users that are using a drug that they know that a lot of their friends have passed, passed away on, do you think that when they're using it, they are convinced that they're not going to die? Or they're just not afraid if they die? I think that deep down, there's, there's a part of them that wants to stop and uh, knows that they can they can definitely put themselves in danger. But I think the addiction leads them to kind of not not care about it. Not like I don't know how motivating that is for a lot of people. For some people it is. But you know, we all kind of draw lines in the sand and cross them. And I think that that is especially true with like addiction is progressive. It, you can get to a place where dying is not a, not the thing that really isn't that important. So that side, that deep down inside of them, that part of them that wants to get well, is that the side that you're trying to empower and, and yeah. grow with and get through to and, and yeah. let, let it know? Because personally, like when somebody is in the, in the throes of their addiction, it's a soul sickness. Yeah. And so their, their soul is pretty much surrounded by egoic behaviors that uh, it's, you know, it's like cheap thrill. Like you, you're basically going to keep using this drug because it makes you feel super good and you overcome your trauma and you don't have to feel a lot of stuff. At least you overcome your trauma temporarily, but the soul is just tainted. Exactly. It's, it's, it's pretty much just engulfed by, by uh, the disease of addiction, the alcoholism. So the goal for you as a therapist or, a person that's helping people as a professional and that 
in the field is to try to get to be able to get to that part of them and and uh, show them their worth, what their their self worth through that. Correct? Yeah, I think that deep down in all of us, we have that part of us that, especially with people who are struggling with addiction, that is aware of what you know is is hoping there's another way. I think the challenge is when you're in the midst of an addiction. You don't really have, unless you have like some former experience with recovery, mm-hmm. you don't really have much to compare it to. So when you're in addiction, if the if the only two things, the two options are, well, I could be high or drunk, or I can be not high or drunk, you're definitely going to go with with the substance because if your idea of sobriety is just not using, mm-hmm. it's it, there's you need something to compare it to. But it requires so much patience and like a leap of faith and that and just circling back to like what also made me want to become a therapist that ties into this is that i'm really fascinated by how much we can as people we can do by ourselves so many things there's so many things we can do by ourselves but what interests me way more is the stuff that we can't do by ourselves Mm. that's way more interesting to me and without a doubt recovery from addiction and mental health issues is one of those is definitely one of those things that we can't do by ourselves. So have you, have you yeah. seen people that were totally hopeless that you thought there was just no hope, even you yourself saw them and thought there may not be hope for this one, pull out of that and be able to overcome their addiction. Have I thought that? No. Have you seen it? I'm surprised so often because what I, you know, I'm surprised. I've definitely met people who have been so, it's more like, how did this person, how is this person still alive? Right. Yeah. What is keeping this person going here? Because I've seen people who it's interesting. I, and especially recently, I've seen people who have like a marijuana addiction, something that's also kind of stigmatized or kind of used to at least be looked at as like, Oh, that's not a real addiction. Right. Uh, Or even a porn addiction. I've seen people who struggle with addictions that may seem a little more low stakes and experience consequences to the extremes of people who may be using something much harder. And, um, and so I, and I've, there's definitely been moments where I'm like, you know, I won't, I, there's a lot of things going against this person getting better. There's so many barriers, you know, let's say they're homeless or uh, everyone in their life uses, or there's all these different barriers. And I'm like, I don't, this person really may not stand the best shot. There's a lot of additional obstacles for this person mm-hmm. than other people. Uh, or if you're extremely wealthy, let's look at the other side, extremely wealthy, very little external consequences, still high functioning at your job, those kinds of things. Like, I wonder what it's going to take for this person, but I'm surprised a lot. I'm really surprised a lot because um, there's definitely been people that I've, I've, I've seen that have had all these barriers, but somehow, once they had a taste of recovery and their life started to improve or they started to really feel better, um, they've, they've really stuck to their, to their uh, recovery. And so I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it. You're, you have an interesting position because you're an interventionist. So I'm not an interventionist by any means. Um, mm-hmm. I deal with crisis all the time, but that's a little different. Mm-hmm. You're in a position where you're meeting someone who's by definition not willing just all right. I mean, if they were willing, you wouldn't even need, you wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't be involved. Right. Right. 
So you're stepping in and you have to do, and you're not just doing an intervention where it's just you and a person. You have to deal with family, friends, loved ones, all these people. Mm -hmm. To me, that's really, really interesting because you're dealing with some, you're dealing with the, the, the very front end of the problem. Like, and usually when it's like really severe, no one's throwing an intervention when someone smokes their first joint or something. Right. To me, that's really interesting because I'm sure you also, I, I'm curious what your answer to that question is. Do you ever go oh. into intervention and think about it? Yeah, I mean, I've seen people um, who, you know, usually as an interventionist, they have to read the room. So in advance, I get a scenario from a fa from family members or friends about the individual and where they are. Some of them might be homeless. Some of them might be shacked up in their house somewhere using heavily. Some of them might be at their parents, at their family's house, like in their own bedroom, pretty much dying off, you know, doing fentanyl or, or drinking or whatever. So if I walk into a situation and I see a certain person, what I have seen a lot of times is, you know, you can only help people depending on their environment too and how willing they are. So as an interventionist, the goal is to try to become, to intervene on their life and let them know their life is not working for them, but to also get them to a point where um, you can empower them with certain things about them that you know or learned or have learned through their family. But mostly you want the family to, to or friends to do most of the talking and let the person know that they're concerned about them and um, there's been a lot of times where I looked at somebody and thought, oh, there's no hope for this one. But by the time that we do help them get, get into a, uh, a place in their life to where they can work on themselves and um, turn it around, a lot of people come in begrudgingly and uh, maybe even come in with this thought of, I'm just going to stay here for a little while and that's it. I'm not going to be staying here very long. And then suddenly, because of the work that's being done, both therapeutically and just being in an environment where they're safe and they're away from things, they suddenly have different ideologies or they've decided that they want to stay longer. They're having realizations about themselves. And the next thing you know, the person's staying uh, full-term treatment. And um, I'll, I'll often go and have a conversation with them and just, you know, just want to learn like what's going on, how's it going. And I realize like they're, they're in the process of reparation. They're in the process of talking, uh, to people and their families that they never wanted to talk to again. They're in the process of mending themselves, let alone mending any, any kind of relationships that, that put them in a, in a position where they hurt people and harmed people. Um, it's really amazing to see people also get color in their skin. People actually uh, start to get some meat on their bones. People that are nutritionally becoming more aware of how they want to eat. They're exercising more. They're working on their spirit. They're in, involved in the 12 steps or refuge recovery or some kind of recovery method that is helping them become the human beings that they were meant to be rather than that facade that people get caught up in. So, yes, I've, I've seen it a lot. And I, I love asking the question because I know I, I have, I've only been to cast centers twice, once when you didn't work there and once when you did. And when I walk into the environment, I just to, like I get I try to put myself in the p position of a person that's new in recovery. And how would I feel if I walked in here? And, you know, like it's very calming. It's very warm. It's a very, very therapeutic environment, it seems. And so if you if the environment's nice, 
and the therapy that's offered is nice, I, I see great outcomes for people that would, uh, would be able to receive that type of treatment. Thank you, Pesh. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really interesting, right? Because as you were talking about you know, how you do interventions, I was thinking to myself, because I, I know you deal with a lot of fentanyl addicts, especially now, and it's, we don't even need to go into this because I'm sure you talk about this all the time on this podcast, but it's such a strange time for drugs. It's a really, really, it is a dangerous time to be a drug addict. Um, yes. Just given what's out there. It's it's totally different than it was just a, several years ago. But um, it just made me think, like, why do you think in your, in your experience, um, the outcome, why do you think it's so difficult or the statistics on people staying sober for long periods of time, so low compared to other things? Well, personally, I hate, I hate statistics. I really am not, um, a fan of numbers for people. I'm more, uh, I'm big on being involved in people's individual lives, uh, and, and recovery. Um, there's so many variables to that question because there's so many different types of addictions, you know, fentanyl addicts these days, I think have less of a chance of, um, being able to get a good taste of recovery and embrace recovery because they're using a drug that they've been captivated by that they'll just keep going back to if they don't actually surrender to the process of, of real recovery, like total abstinence, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like that last time that I detoxed um, should be the last time. And I don't want it anymore. Most of the people that go through detoxes, whether it be for fentanyl, for heroin, for even for alcohol, often don't have the idea of I'm coming here to detoxify my body for the better good of my body. So I never have to feel this way again. What happens is they go and they detox and suddenly, you know, they get this thought again of, okay, I'm good. Like I, I got this. I can go now. And they go and they may not get high right away. Some of them do. Some of them don't. But um, but they go with the idea of like, I, I got I got it this time. I overshot the mark last time. I'm going to be good. And they're right back out. So does do statistics even pertain to this? No, I think it, it comes down. It boils down to the indiv individual and who's trying to help them. Yeah. You know, like, where are they going? Because a lot of people go to detox and you have underqualified people that are working in the detox that know nothing about addiction or may not even really truly be in, in recovery themselves if, if they say they're in recovery. It's just a job for them. So they're just there to, to, you know, punch in the clock, but not really like speak recovery to those people. Or, you know, I, I believe good therapy is, is out there. A lot of people go to treatment centers where they can receive really good therapy. But I believe that, you know, what a person walks into, if it's solid, they can they can receive a lot more um, therapy and recovery as it is presented to many that that stay long term sober. Because I see a lot of success stories go to lots of places where good therapy is provided. Um, however, in this day and age, uh, especially with what you mentioned, if you really know the history of fentanyl and how it's hit the streets and how it's on a national level and how it's in many, many different types of drugs, we're in a very weird time when it comes to um, 
just the drug epidemic or the fentanyl epidemic as a whole. I got that fentanyl ink book, um, incorporated book, and it really tells you like what's happened more recently in the last five, six, seven years of, of addiction. So um, I believe, and especially because we, we named the topic of this, um, this particular podcast today, uh, how to overcome addiction. I believe that it is, we're in a very crucial time um, all throughout the world, not just for people that have addiction, but for people that have friends or family that have addiction where uh, people's lives are on the line and people are going to die more and more. It's going to happen no matter what. There, we can go and, and uh, raise awareness all we want. We can try all we want to spread the message of recovery. But no matter how we look at it, this isn't going away. This is not going away. It's going to just keep getting worse and worse because it's being mass produced in other countries and being distributed into our country. So um, I believe we, you know, we have a duty for those of us that are professionals that work in the field to be able to get in touch with people individually and speak to their souls and, and let them know like you're, it's not just that your life is on the line, but you really need to, hopefully you need to get to a point in your life where your life means more to you than losing your life. Yeah, definitely. I, you brought up such a good point, especially when you're talking about the detox, because uh, I agree. I think one of the reasons people relapse a lot, which is, which is really what I was asking is like, when people relapse, one of the things I've also seen, like you said, is their lives will get better. And that is the thing that, will lead to relapse. It's so funny how uh, that works because it's almost like we ignore a cause and effect. It's like we take Advil and then our headache goes away and we're not attributing the Advil to our headache being gone. And I've always found that to be really interesting. And it's, I think people who aren't in recovery, haven't struggled with addiction, assume that people who are addicts use drugs for, because uh, their lives are difficult or they feel really bad or something. It's not just that. It's when things are going really well as well. Sure. That, so that's really interesting. And I agree with you, Paj. I, I, I kind of I have the exact same philosophy. For me, I've never been able to kind of see myself doing things on a macro level ever. I, in fact, I kind of go out of my way to do things without recognition because I like working with people one-on-one. I, I'm not, and and I think it's really important for the people who do work on my <laughs> But I think it's about knowing all our strengths. And that's not one of my strengths. For me, it's working with people one-on-one. Yeah. And, and feeling like I have an impact on that, on that level. At the end of the day, I'm like such a small participant in something that someone else is doing. You know, I think that we all already have it, a lot of the answers to our questions. We just can't do it alone. We can't do these things. How do you overcome addiction? Not alone, first thing, can't do it alone. And that's why therapy will never keep someone sober. I think it's really important. I'm very I, happy that you brought that up. Yeah, because therapy will help people get sober. It'll help people while they're staying sober, kind of uncover maybe some of the things that could lead them to relapse, some of the things that kind of need some repairing, getting some more introspection, self-esteem, things like that. At the end of the day, if there's no community piece, right? There's no community piece. And like you said, the soul piece, which can only happen when you're with other people feeling connected, right? 
Right. If that doesn't exist. So I support groups. Uh, AA, any support group uh, is so encouraged and important is because of that. You can't get that in individual therapy. You can get it initially with group therapy. It gives you a structure. It's very helpful to get you sober long term. There has to be community component. I love. Uh, yeah, I love that. I want. I want to speak on that a little bit more. So, obviously, not just as an interventionist, but I've worked on the front lines of addiction uh, treatment uh, as a case manager, uh, tech, um, program director, program manager, and um, I have met very many different types of therapists. Some therapists are not down with twelve steps. They're not down with AA. They're they are. Uh, some of them have more of a, a holistic approach or they think that the 12 steps aren't going to work for everybody. And truth be told, it's not going to work for everybody because a lot of people don't want to surrender to that process. However, I love when I meet therapists or no therapists that advocate for that because you are absolutely right. You can hash out and work through uh, situations that have happened in your life if you are an addict or an alcoholic or have a mental health disorder all you want um, for years. I know people that go to, to therapy for years, but for some reason, there's still a part of them that's not yet letting go of something, some sort of trauma, which keeps them stuck and which sometimes more often than none will take them back to using or drinking or, you know, so I love that you brought that up. Uh, another thing is, is I, I noticed that, um, you know, like when you're a professional in the field, like I'm a therapist. I'm sorry. I'm a I'm an interventionist. You're a therapist, and you can pretty much tell when you talk to an individual that is a chronic relapser that there's something in that person's life that has not been worked through yet, or some things. There are some deep-rooted happenings, events, traumatic experiences. Something they're holding on to something. So usually, like you know we can look at someone and think, okay, there's, there's some unresolved issues there. Like the, this, this person would get a lot better in their life if they could resolve or at least work through these issues. There are some people who are also, you know, a lot of disorders are, are just stamped on people, you know, like uh, borderline personality disorder or narcissism or so many different uh, disorders are stamped on people. And sometimes when somebody has that, um, somebody's uh, diagnosed them as that, they will then inherit that and live as if they have to remain that way. You know, some people actually want to address the issue and they don't like it. They want to be able to work through whatever it is. Um, most of it is all trauma-based, you know, if not all of it. Uh, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Something's happened in that person's life to make them uh, be wired the way that they are or whatnot. But I, when I... I, this is my personal belief as an interventionist, and I don't have to always say it in the intervention. If I'm still working with the person in their life as a coach or things like that, I don't, I don't like to really hold back on telling people the truth. If I have to work my way into it, that's fine. I don't, you know, there used to be a, ta a time when I had a certain style and I was taught by a certain person to be very assertive to where I could sometimes offend somebody. But I also, I believe that. Once I build a rapport or build some trust with somebody, I don't have to like feel bad about telling them like your life is not working for you. I see you come and go a lot and uh, you know, your life is on the line and this is lethal. You know, you're going to die. 
Yeah, because I think to myself, like when we see our friends or colleagues or uh, or our clients or people that we've tried to work with in the past, when we see on Facebook, oh, we lost another one, another one gone too soon. Or we go to their funeral and we, we listen to the eulogy about all the good things about the individual. Um, I often think to myself, did I say enough? Did I, could I have said anything differently? Yes, they're gone. At this point, they're gone. But what can I do for the next one that I didn't do for this one in order to try to help them uh, have some kind of realization that their life's not working? And I've, and I've had the conversation where I've said it to people plenty of times. Hey, like you're going to die straight up. If you keep doing this, you're going to die. We don't want you to die. We all love you. Your family's here. Your friends are here. We love you. I love you. I'm, I want to learn to love you, but you're going to die. And at least I know that it, even if they don't listen and they go and do their own thing and they do overdose and die or drink themselves to death, at least I know I didn't do a disservice to them because I was real with them. And I think a lot of times addicts and alcoholics want someone to be real with them rather than to coddle them or to nurture their ego or their disease or their alcoholism. I think a lot of people really want to hear the truth. They're just they're so used to manipulating to nurture their own ego and their disease that they they're just they don't want to hear it or they act like they don't want to hear it. But at least I say it, even if I hurt somebody's feelings and and they don't want to hear that. I I do a lot of interventions, a lot of them. I don't think that any intervention that I've ever done is not successful. You know, just because I don't get somebody into treatment or get somebody to be convinced to get help doesn't mean it wasn't a success. That person at some point in their addiction has now been given an opportunity and been shown that we can help you. Like people care about you. You can't now say no, people don't care because mm -hmm. we care. Otherwise we wouldn't show up like this to try to help you out. So to me, that's a success. Even if the person doesn't decide to go right then we've now planted a seed in that person's head that your life ain't working for you. People care about you and you have the opportunity now to get help because, because the opportunity has been afforded to you by your family or by your friends. So ball is in your court. What do you want to do? And sometimes people, be, you know, it might take them a little while to think about it, but over a period of time, they can think about it. And I'm, I'm a, I advocate very much for aftercare. Like, yes, we're going to help you. You've decided to get the help that you want. What's going to happen? Let's start building your aftercare plan. What are you going to do when you get out of here? Where are you going to live? Who Are you going to sober living? Are you going to get your own place? Where are you going to work? Are you going to be plugged into some kind of recovery community, whatever that may be, so that you can obtain long-term recovery, life-term recovery? You know, that's, that's of great importance. Now I've kind of just taken over this whole thing with, with that. <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's exactly what I was saying in the beginning with my experience in therapy when I was a teenager is that what I was looking for in hindsight was the truth. Someone right. to tell me something that resembled reality because I, a lot of us, you know, you're right. It, I, you know, addicts and alcoholics spend so much time avoiding reality and uh, that the truth really stands out when they hear it. They, you know, they may have a reaction to it, but I think as people, we have no idea. I have no idea what resonates with my clients or people I talk to on the phone or people who reach out to me or 
family member. I have no idea what it is that's helpful, right? I don't know. Sometimes people will uh, connect with something that I even, I forgot even telling them. I, right. I don't know what it is. I don't have that level of power. You know, it's just, it's all about my, like our intentions as people work in the field, our intention of, you know, helping the person, truly just helping the person hmm. and um, knowing our limitations. Because if I know that, you know, if someone reaches out and it's something that I'm not able to help them with, and I know that it's about getting them to the right person who can. And I agree with you 100%. I, after there's some sort of a rapport build, it's really, it's really helpful. That's why I like working at an IOP. So I, outpatient is my favorite. You know why? Because there's a short amount of time. All, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, when you look at someone's life, them going to an IOP is a short amount of time compared to their whole lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you kind of have to push for quick results. You don't really have the luxury of, you know, easing into things uh, and, and as you would in the same way as individual therapy. In outpatient, there's a, you know, you got to keep it moving a little bit. And, right. But everyone's at a different place. That doesn't mean everyone, some people start here, some people start there. But it's, I agree, I'm very feedback oriented with my clients for the ones that seem uh, like it would benefit them. Right. right. I, would not, I wouldn't do it if it was just for myself. It's only when I feel like this client would benefit from, from the, tr- you know, feedback directly to the truth. A lot of clients ideally connect that on their own, but sometimes you don't have the time, you know, sometimes you, and I find that it works with a lot of people, but a lot of people are, I think, afraid of doing that mm-hmm. are afraid of giving that kind of feedback to people. Um, I'm not for a number of reasons. Hmm. So as far as your outpatient, how can people find you? Well, online, castcenters.com, C-A-S-T. It's called Cast Centers. It's like, a, you know, like if you break your arm, you wear a cast. It's like healing it back into place. Um, that's, that's the best place to find us. Uh, I don't really do social media or anything like that. <laughs> like I said, I'm a little low key. Um, but we, we will, you call us, we'll help you with whatever it is. If it's not something we can help you with, we will definitely point you in the right direction. Okay. And then, so you guys are based in the heart of LA in, in Beverly Hills. Um, when people are locally living there, they can come into cast to do outpatient if they, if, uh, if they're, you know, if they call you and, and they're in network or you guys can take their insurances or their private pay. Now, what about telehealth? You guys offer telehealth? Yeah, we do. And we have a, actually an evening program. Mm-hmm. We, we designed it because we realized that a lot of people, one of the barriers for people mm-hmm. uh, in coming and getting the help they need was they have a job, you know, and they can't just drop their work or their finances to go to treatment. But unfortunately, a lot of people who have a job or a career still need some sort of structure and support. And so mm-hmm. we created an evening program that's after work hours. It's an IOP pro. It's an outpatient program that's right. entirely online. Okay. And um, for that exact reason, yeah. Okay. Very well. This has been a great episode of Peggy's Recovery Corner. It's good to hear your just your knowledge base. You're such a good good individual. It's, it's always nice to see you. It's nice to see how far you've come in your 
uh, in your career. And I know that you help a lot of people and I appreciate you very much for coming on today. Thank you, Pej. I appreciate you having me. This has been awesome. It's been a really cool experience. Much love to you. Have a good rest of your day. And thank you to anybody that tuned in. Talk soon. Talk soon.